You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology. This call was recorded at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, October 16th. Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks? Uh, no. Okay. Any questions? All right, let's get to those questions. Uh, first question. Hey, Michael. How are you? Um, look, here's a comment from the strategist at Credit Suisse. While concerns about widespread second lockdown have increased, improvements in treatments have led to a large decoupling between deaths and infections compared with the initial stages. We think any second lockdown is likely to be short, confined to specific localities or high-risk groups. Agree, disagree, and show your work. <laughs> Um, yeah, I feel like uh, I would say that there's a couple of things. Certainly, mortality has reduced, um, but but we shouldn't mistake it for being uh, greatly reduced in within the individual age strata. Uh, we have gotten a little bit better at, at ensuring that we're not allowing uh, the virus to enter into nursing homes, which uh, so far have accounted for almost forty percent uh, or a bit more of of all the deaths, and so. Uh, if we can really keep the virus out of there, it, it does. we do have a, a declining uh, mortality rate. But if we were to allow this virus to spread uh, much more widely, I think we would really have a, a massive uh, amount of difficulty to uh, prevent spread into these very vulnerable locations. So uh, I do agree that probably we will see more targeted lockdowns instead of just massive uh, lockdowns. Um, and that's maybe no for no other reason except that the public might not be willing to undergo larger lockdowns, uh, in particular if we don't have uh, pretty immense uh, economic sort of um, bolstering uh, during that period of time through con congressional appropriations or something like that. Um, but we, we don't really know yet, I would say. Uh, there's a very good chance that in the next couple of months, we will just see cases continue to climb and climb. And maybe it will happen sufficiently gradually that people will be uninterested in taking it uh, particularly seriously or something odd like that. Um, and I think that like the, the problem with COVID fatigue is, is real. And, um, and we're just going to become complacent with uh, hundreds of thousands of additional people dying. Uh, and that's more or less what we're seeing happening. Uh, you know, maybe the, a change in, in leadership will, will affect that significantly. But, um, but I, I do think that we will see both of these things happen. We'll see less ta more targeted lockdowns, maybe less lockdowns overall. But, but in, in, in association with that, we'll just see a, a greater willingness to let this virus continue to spread. And, and ultimately could end up killing more people than have already died. So it's a complex issue that, that really does take into account enormous uh, complexities around the economy, people's well-being outside of COVID, and then, of course, the damage due to COVID itself. Great. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, next question. Uh, hello, Professor. So I have two questions. The first one is, uh, because uh, recently many countries around the world have seen a large rebound of the epidemic, so does it mean that the second wave is coming? 
And in the next stage, what new approach or strategy should America or all the world adopt? Um, yes, uh, the short answer is yes to the first question. Um, uh, I think what has happened is, is the population at large has mistaken um, continued transmission for there not being a second wave and, and just this idea that we're, we're just on the first wave which is sort of true, but there's a real danger in that thinking and that, uh, and that danger would be that it's not going to get worse, that we're already at a peak of a wave and, and that wave won't grow. Uh, but I, I think firmly the other direction that we will see continued increases in cases um, that could, uh, especially in the US, we're, we're actually almost already back at the peak that we saw uh, nationally in the summer in the early summer, uh, when when cases started to really spread through through the South and and the and and the Midwest and California, we're almost back at that same same level, and and I don't believe that we're anywhere close to that that rise abating, and so um, so call it what we will, whether it's a second wave, a third wave, uh, a, an increase of the first wave, uh, there's no good definition for what defines a, a wave. Um, but certainly, I think what we can say is that cases will go up. We're seeing them go up in, in Europe and in many of those places, cases truly did get down to fairly low numbers first, and now they're skyrocketing again in many places. Uh, we're seeing it in the US and we're seeing it in uh, other places as well. And so uh, we're pretty much there and, and I think we have a, a, long, a long winter ahead. Uh, and the, the second question, what are, what are the, the the, the programs we could put in, put in place. I've talked a lot about these in the past. I think number one is we have to stop being complacent as we wait for a vaccine. Our policymakers have put so much energy into talking about a vaccine and placing our whole, pinning our whole response essentially on the vaccine. It's discussed daily. It's been discussed daily for months and it will continue being discussed daily. And it's important, but, it, but we are not in anywhere close to a position to pin our mitigation strategies on a vaccine that doesn't yet exist. Um, so that's where masks and distancing are, are really two of the, and then other normal pieces of hygiene are, are the, 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 the routine things we could be doing every day. And I've discussed a lot in the past that there is a strategy that is as ambitious, if you will, as a vaccine, but unlike a vaccine, we could be building it now. We could be deploying it now. And this is very frequent testing to the masses, get uh, you know flood communities that are being hard hit, hit with this virus, flood them with frequent testing so that as many people as possible at any given time know their status and can can isolate and quarantine uh, their neighbors without uh, without finding out that they were positive two weeks ago or or without going their whole course of infection without knowing that they were positive at all. So we we have the a tool that at least could be uh, used in concert with social distancing and with masks. And that's very frequent, rapid uh, tests that can be built into many, many millions per day and distributed widely. Um, they would be flexible in a way that PCR is not. PCR, you have to have a lot of logistics surrounding, uh, surrounding any programs that are focused on PCR testing in a laboratory. These would be tests that could be used at home, at school, at work. Uh, before you get on a plane, whatever it might be, any opportunity we can take to identify positive people and ask them to isolate is, is a transmission chain severed. 
and, uh, and potentially tens, hundreds, or thousands of cases that do not end up occurring down that transmission chain as a result of finding that one individual one at a time. And so I think we can bank on herd effects, which are very similar to vaccine uh, herd immunity uh, that could be derived from frequent testing as a true robust program that, in, that is ambitious for sure, but it's, it's no more ambitious uh, than, than the speed that we've put our focus on vaccines, but it is uh, perhaps more, uh, uh, we have to, th there's not a time limit, you know, with, with vaccines, we have to wait until the studies and the safety studies get done. There's no safety signals here. We just have to figure out how to, how to deploy them, build them, deploy them, and message them appropriately. Uh, thank you. Uh, actually, I have one more question about the Great Barrington Declaration. I know there are already many discussions around this declaration, and my key question is that the declaration stated that the risk of death raised by COVID-19 is almost a thousand times higher for the elderly than the young. The young. So for children, the risk is even lower than uh, infect, infecting flu. But there are also increasing evidence of young people suffering long, uh, longer-term health consequences from moderate or even mild COVID-19 infections. So uh, I want to know that because I, because I have already read many articles and ISIS that I want to know I want to I want to know that if there is a consensus among uh, uh, scientists about the uh, different risk among different age groups. Uh, you have already make making consensus on this issue, and uh, we should find a age-based strategy around around this this topic. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot in that question. Um, certainly, we I've been saying since February that we should be taking advantage of the age of what we know about the age uh, associated risks of this virus. Uh, there is some likelihood that, that younger people will have uh, long-term consequences, but they're probably uh, at the end of the day going to be rare. But it doesn't, that shouldn't be misconstrued for this idea of just going forward with herd immunity. I think it's, I think it's a terrible idea, um, what was described um, in the Great Barrington Declaration. But I also think that completely discounting it is a terrible idea as well. I think we have to be really serious about understanding what are the, what are the economic consequences and the social consequences to society of, of, uh, of this virus and our reaction to the virus, and how do we weigh them appropriately uh, against, uh, against our, our, our individual um, strategies to contain the virus. Uh, it's not easy, and, and there's no clear answer of what's right and what's wrong in this case. Um, and in some ways, it might differ by country, it might differ by social structure, and, and by, uh, by, by how, how individual uh, countries want to respond and, and what their risk tolerance is, um, what their age stratifications are in their, in their communities. So there's no, there's no single answer. I would say there is consensus that this virus is more lethal um, to elderly than young, uh, and in young it is less uh, less uh, lethal than flu. Um, but it, but I, I'm really concerned that if we did just go the herd immunity pathway, we we really couldn't necessarily keep the elderly safe. Um, if this virus was everywhere, we just wouldn't be able to keep it out of uh, the nursing home. So 
sure, it might pull off the Band-Aid quickly, but at great uh, devastation to populations at risk. And I don't think many populations are willing to, to take that on as a consequence of controlling the virus or not controlling the virus, I should say. Um, so it's it's a it's a difficult question. I don't think I think that the the media has kind of pinned it as two sides, and scientists have pinned it as two sides in many ways. And and um, you know I think that it needs to be dealt with in a more nuanced way. And I've tried to do that myself, working with economists like Jim Stock at Harvard. We've published a, a couple of papers on this particular issue, saying that there has to be middle ground. We have to consider the economic devastation at the same time as we consider. Uh, the containment of the virus and how do we do that in a comprehensive way. The only way that I know to do that is to start bringing the epidemiologists together with the economists, the social behavioral scientists, and have us all work together. And, and largely we haven't seen that happen, uh, which has been a real disappointment. I've been trying to and uh, there are some others, but, but in general the discussions have remained fairly disparate. Thank you. Next question. Hi, uh, Dr. Mina. Thanks again for doing this. Um, we were just, you know, wondering about. Um, we we've heard a lot of uh, news about you know these massive quantities of the Binax now that are going out, you know, to Texas, Arizona, and the schools across the country. But in your opinion, do we have enough to make a difference with you know cases starting to rise nationally? Are you optimistic that we have enough to make a difference? No, <laughs> no, I don't think we have nearly enough. Um, 150 million sounds like a lot, uh, but it's not 100. There's a few parts to this. It's not a lot. First, it sounds like a lot to the to the to the average person in the street. So, it's, oh, 150 million is a big number. Uh, but the the rate they're going to be built at 30 million a month so far. So that's enough for about one person to have one test per year. It's just not a lot in this country. Um, if we were a small country of, uh, of a few thousand people, <laughs> sure, it would be a lot. Um, but we're not, we're 330 million. Um, and so 150 million is what they purchased. Those 150 million aren't gonna be deployed tomorrow. And if they were deployed tomorrow, it would use up all of them so they couldn't be deployed next week. Uh, so what we really need is a very consistent supply of 10 or 20 or 30 million a day. Um, and we don't have that. And so, you know, when, when uh, the vice president uh, got up and announced in the Rose Garden uh, a number of weeks ago for a second time, it was, already, it was already announced in August. So I don't know why they had a whole second announcement except to distract from, from taxes and such. Um, uh, but when they got up and announced the, the use of them, they said things like, all teachers will be safe to go to school. We'll be able to, to really ensure the safety of, of teachers in K through 12 schools and things like that. And that's just total, um, it, it's fabrication. It's, it's stretching the truth beyond what, where it really should be stretched. Um, and, uh, and it's just hyperbole. They're, they're, they're saying words that don't really match facts. And um, uh, in this case, to actually get enough tests to, to keep K through 12 schools safe and to keep teachers safe, uh, if testing is one of the major strategies and frequent testing, would it would have to be frequent. You can't just test somebody once and say that they're negative. Not with a virus like this. It doesn't work that way. Um, and so uh, in general, I, I say that it's a good start, um, but I'm extraordinarily frustrated that the federal government is just continuing this, this, um, this position where their, their only strategy is to purchase what becomes available through the, 
through industry and, and corporations in the private market. Um, the, this is this is uh, this is effectively a war against a virus. It's damaging our society in a way that very few things in the past century have done. Uh, and and you know it's the economic hardship. It's closing of businesses. It's deaths. It's everything. Why are we not treating this uh, as we would a third world war? You know this is this should be treated with that same sense of urgency. And part of that would be just building the damn tests ourselves. Just, we know how to build these things. We, we, the same way that we build missiles and bombs, we should just be taking the onus on us as a country, as a federal government, and not just paying a company and saying, whatever you can make us great, that's enough. We should be taking the initiative to build them and to ensuring that everyone can go to school safely and that we can actually control this virus. And, we just haven't really seen any any movement in that direction. Do you have a follow-up? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, just quickly, were you surprised at what happened at the White House after the Rose Garden event? I mean, I, I know you, like, we've been following your work for a while and you've been saying testing is not a replacement for, you know, masks and other infection control measures, but were you surprised that it, you know, it stretched so far? No, not really. Um, this is how super spreading events work. Um, you get one person who's really aerosolizing virus, um, and uh, and this is the the, the natural consequence. Um, what I what I do think is really important to recognize is that uh, that frequent testing was used as one of the only barriers to of this virus up until the Rose Garden event, uh, and and the White House was actually able to stave off. Uh, outbreaks like this earlier on. And I think that uh, a lot of people misconstrued the Rose Garden event as uh, evidence for frequent testing not, not being useful. But frequent testing as a strategy to combat a virus is all about reducing odds of transmission. It's not about a bulletproof uh, way to prevent all transmission. And that's why it has to be couched in, in all of the other measures we should be taking, like masks and social distancing, but it can be along with those, it can provide sort of the, one of the strongest barriers, not completely impenetrable, obviously, as we saw, but a very strong barrier to, to reduce the risk of these events happening. And, uh, and that's really what we saw from March through October. Uh, and then, uh, but, but I look at the White House as just rolling a roulette wheel every day and uh, eventually it was gonna land on, on the, wrong, the wrong box. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, but they could have really improved their odds if they were also wearing masks. You know, maybe that same person, if they had been wearing masks, uh, we wouldn't have seen uh, a super spreading event like this happen despite that one person squeaking through and, and, and not getting caught by the test for whatever reason. We're still not, we don't even know enough information about whether the person was uh, even tested, you know, was the super spreader the president? We don't know. Um, and we don't know if that president or that, that person uh, was being tested beforehand. Um, so we can't really say too much about that. But, um, but the short answer to the question is no, this isn't surprising at all. Uh, if you continue to have community gatherings like that and you refuse to wear masks, uh, you can cut your risk through frequent testing, but you cannot uh, you cannot uh, prevent these types of things in absolute. Okay. Uh, it's all set? Yeah, thanks, Sacramento.
next question. Hi. This week, the CDC issued some, I think they called them interim guidelines for testing in schools. And I wonder if you had a chance to look at those and what you thought of them. I uh, was having a hard time figuring out what the takeaway was. I mean, they did mention the possibility of frequent testing, but a lot of the guidance was sort of couched in terms of you could do this, you might do this. So I'm curious what your take was. Uh, to be honest, I, I haven't um, seen them yet, uh, which to me suggests that they probably weren't particularly clear or, or, or useful. <laughs> and so, um, otherwise, they probably would have landed on my desk at this point. Um, uh, but I, I would say that I, I think that there hasn't been, it, my guess, and I, 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 if, if somebody doesn't mind sending them to me, I'd, I'd be happy to, to comment on them uh, via email or something for you later. Um, but my guess, knowing the types of recommendations that have come out thus far, is there's not a strong stance because there's no real stance that the CDC can take at this moment because there's no, they can't provide or guarantee testing with any sort of uh, regularity to any school across the country um, or, or really even create programs that include it because different schools will have access to different, uh, different amounts of testing and different, uh, and we'll have different resources. And so far, our federal government has not done much to improve that fact, to, to try to help schools gain equitable access to testing in a way that they can control. And it's one of the things that I find so appealing about uh, if the federal government would take it upon themselves to build up uh, tests and, and these rapid frequent tests, which uh, of course, new evidence uh, it continues to come out. There's been a lot of good data now showing just how powerful and effective and sensitive uh, and even specific that these new rapid tests can be. Um, I think one of the real appeals there is that if the government did build them in sufficient numbers for K through 12 schools, for example, then they could actually come out with policy that, that really serves as more than just some hand waving. Uh, to help schools understand what to do. But at this point, they, they don't have control over any testing infrastructure. They don't really have control over any programs that they could uh, suggest because they just can't guarantee that any one school would actually have access to what it is that they are suggesting to do. And, um, and this is a failure of our, of our country at the moment. It's not necessarily a failure of the CDC. The CDC is completely, uh, they don't have a lot of options here. I would say, and, and um, so I've, I think they're in a very tough place to, to create any useful recommendations because they don't have the tools that they can guarantee to anyone uh, if they were to make recommendations that are helpful. Do you have a follow-up? Sure, just that was helpful. Broadly, um, some people seem to be ready to draw conclusions um, from the first month or six weeks of school in some places that opening schools turns out to be safe um, because you know we haven't read about too many wild outbreaks in schools. Are you drawing any conclusions at this point? And, and if so, what are you basing that on? And if not, what are you waiting for? Yeah, um, no, I haven't drawn any conclusions about this particular issue. I do think that schools are areas that can transmit widely. Uh, we've seen evidence of it already, and that um, 
you know, in, for example, the, the summer camp in Georgia showed very well that, that, that you put the wrong, uh, the wrong person at the wrong time into the wrong place and you can end up with serious super spreading events that then can transmit to the wider community. Uh, my hope is that schools can, can figure out how to remain safe, but I, I do think that as we start to see community spread increase uh, in, in cities and in, and in uh, communities, that uh, just the chances of new cases coming into schools and, and leading to transmission will inevitably increase and, and we'll probably see them. Uh, will, it be, uh, will it be so frequent and devastating that schools have to shut down? Um, I hope not, uh, but I do think that uh, all evidence suggests at this point that children can transmit and can, can acquire the virus. They can, get, uh, they can have viral loads that, that rival any adult. Um, and in fact, the distributions are quite similar from what we've seen in terms of the viral loads. And so I, I, I don't see any reason why, um, why schools couldn't be areas of transmission. I do think we should be trying to do everything we can to stop cases from entering into them. But I wouldn't want to say, and I don't think I'll end up saying at any point that schools are immune to transmission within their walls. Are you all set? I'm all set, thank you. Great. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, on August 29th, uh, comments of yours were published in the New York Times regarding cycle thresholds for PCR tests for COVID-19. Uh, the gist here uh, is that uh, CT should be published alongside positive results to give a better idea of viral load. Um, locally, these comments have been taken out of their original context by conspiracy-minded people proclaiming that all PCR tests are invalid because they detect dead virus by running PCR to 40 cycles. I don't think this is the intent of your original comments. Could you please clarify uh, your comments to the Times? Sure. Uh, no, the, I would say that, um, that the article led to massive confusion uh, uh, in, in uh, at the same time, though, it did, it did get the message out and it has really changed the conversation at the federal level and, and amongst um, de departments of health and really globally um, about whether or not we should be considering cycle thresholds. And so I would say uh, while, there, while a lot of confusion and conspiracies were developed from that article um, and from the research that we've published um, that led to that article uh, in large part, um, uh, it, is, it has been effective. So I'll say that it's been effective in, in making people think, including the FDA and the CDC, about, um, about uh, uh, cycle thresholds and their importance. Um, uh, but but the, the, the conspiracy theorists have largely said things like uh, that, that PCR is, uh, because it's picking up dead virus, it's wrong. Um, that's not true. And the, they're not false positives that are getting picked up. And I think a lot of people, because the headlines that picked up that story kind of said 90% of, might have even said it in the story, um, which wasn't, but I think it was in, in a little more context, uh, that 90% of the, the PCR results from surveillance are, are false positives. That's not true, they're true positives. They're really picking up the viral RNA. What it means is that we just need to be doing more frequent testing uh, if we want a chance at catching those same people early. So the people who get, uh, the important thing to recognize is that those people who are getting a test um, 
who are coming up positive, but at a very low RNA load or very high cycle threshold, they were likely very high viral loads earlier. They, they likely were at a transmissible state, maybe a week or two or three earlier. So the problem isn't so much that the, the test is incorrect. It's that uh, we're not interpreting it in, uh, correctly when we, if we go and assume that every positive means that somebody is currently at the beginning of their infection and transmissible. Um, and so the, the, the cycle thresholds can really help us to better interpret the value. And this is back in March, we published a paper, March or, or, or April, that, was, that said, you know, to, to appropriately use the SARS-CoV-2 test, uh, you know, use the cycle threshold to guide you, uh, as effectively was the message. And we can use that both in clinical space and in public health to know, do, does somebody need a full 10 days of isolation? Do all of their contacts from yesterday need to be isolated, quarantined? Uh, and in large part, no, but we, we have strategies. If we know that they're a very low viral load and we, and we see that two days in a row, then that means that uh, we can use that information to say, hey, maybe this person doesn't need to be isolated. Uh, they have no known exposure, uh, but they are positive, but with such a low amount that it means that they're probably over their infection uh, weeks ago. We can, we can make those assessments from the cycle threshold, but this should not be misconstrued as saying that the PCR tests are wrong. It's, I would say that we're just not using them for all of the power that they have. We're throwing away one of the, one of the only pieces of data that we really have for a lot of people who get found on surveillance, who don't have a known exposure, who don't have symptoms. We have very little to go on besides a plus sign and the cycle threshold is, is what we have to go on there to, to better interpret their plus. And, uh, and so I think that that article was taken out of context, it was misconstrued. It shouldn't be that we should not be going up to a 40, a cycle threshold of 40, that's the, that's a wrong evaluation. We should always be using the test to its maximum to detect uh, as many people as we can. But then once we know that somebody's positive, we should then take the next step and interpret it appropriately and say, you know, is there more that we can learn from this? Uh, the easiest example is not at the low ends of, of viral loads, but it's if somebody is found to have a very high viral load. You know, those would be people that if I was a contact tracing unit or a public health department, I'd want to take that person who's detected today with a very high viral load and put them immediately to the top of my list because they're the most, um, they're the, 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 the best bang for the buck, if you will, to uh, and most efficient use of, of resources to, to stop new transmission is if you know that somebody is currently highly infectious or potentially highly infectious, and you know that then you have a very limited number of people that you need to necessarily contact trace to ensure that they weren't infected. Uh, so we're just not interpreting the, the CT values uh, at all at the moment, and that's really what that was about. Uh, I do have a follow-up. In terms of, uh, in a clinical or diagnostic setting, there can be uh, considerable pre-analytical variance in the viral load of any given sample due to things like sample error or sample storage conditions or the phase or severity of infection that a patient might present with. Uh, how do variables like this influence the discussion of the use of CT values as part of uh, the testing, the testing regime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that it has to be taken in context. Um, you know, I've been astounded at the number of, of people who bring up this point and see this as a deal breaker. 
nobody ever said that anything in medicine is perfect. The whole, if, if, if we could completely rely on every data point that we got in isolation, then we wouldn't need doctors. Google would, would do everything. You know, we would just have, we would have no physicians anymore. So, so the, these data just need to be assessed in the context of each individual, the same way that we normally do this. If you get a positive person, they are, you know, it, it, I, I, I like to give the example of, of listening to a heartbeat. Um, doctors all listen to heartbeats. The sensitivity is, uh, and, and the, the variance that's associated with, with listening to somebody's heart is, is vast. You know, maybe you catch somebody, maybe you don't with a murmur or something. Um, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't be incorporating that information into our into our clinical context. The same thing goes here. Um, uh, the easiest, like I said, the easiest uh, piece, if for if for no other reason, we should be identifying those with very high viral loads because a bad swab and a poorly performed test isn't going to make the viral load erroneously high. That only only a high viral load can make the the test come up with a really high viral load, unless it's a you know, unless the sample mix-up or something. Um, so, so we have the, we, we, that's at least one direction that we, we can go and we can say, look, that, that's an important piece of information. And then on the other sides, we could say, if you have a very low viral load, then, then what's our next step? Just like physicians normally do. We get this result and what do we do next? Do we believe it outright? Probably not. It's not a good idea to just completely take these values at face value because uh, because there is a lot of uh, pre-analytical uh, variation. It's in the swab, it's in uh, transport, all these things. But for example, we can, we can improve that, uh, our understanding, if we have a positive today with a low viral load and we test them tomorrow again, uh, and they have a very high viral load, then you know that you struck gold and you found somebody very early uh, in their course of infection and you have uh, removed them from infecting others through isolation. But if they're very low, low viral load and then it happens again tomorrow, and if you want to be extremely cautious, do it again a third day. And if they remain at a 38 and a 38 and a 38, uh, then that is extraordinarily strong evidence that this person is no longer infectious. Uh, and, and most likely, you know, in just pure mathematics bear this out, the most likely scenario for that individual is that they are over the course of infection. So, I just think, I think we've, we continue to try to make everything black and white and say this can't work because of this, but you know, the, the natural human predilection is to poke holes in, in ideas. Um, and that's, that's needed, but, but in the midst of a pandemic, I think we should be trying to think more constructively. And so this is a good example of where we have to say, okay, there is variance. How do we overcome that? How do we still use this data? to our advantage to know how best to contain this virus. And, and I think that we have a lot of options. I do, I do take this point. Uh, and it's the, the question I asked was not intended to like. No, I didn't, I didn't take it as that. Yeah, but the, the thing that um, I guess is the natural follow-up to that is if you're a contact tracer, um, how much information are you actually getting about each, like about each kind of uh, PCR kit for COVID? Uh, when you're receiving like a positive test to investigate. I, I think that if you're going to uh, use a CT value, you also have to include a fair degree of technical information and training for people, probably, in order to make that value meaningful because 
PCR kits aren't necessarily cross comparable. They don't always have the same safety threshold. So like yeah, again, this is, this is completely normal. I think people have lost their minds here. This is, this is why every single lab in the country makes their own distributions and makes their own normal values. Um, we, we know the metrics like this, the idea that an instrument isn't comparable across instruments is, is totally normal. We deal with that every single day in laboratory medicine, even just with basic chemistries, cholesterol, uh, you know, and anything along those lines, we have uh, normal values that are specific to labs and specific to instruments. This is how FDA approvals work. This is uh, all of this is totally normal in the for people who are used to laboratory medicine. So I've been really surprised that this has continued to be an issue. Like we know how to deal with this. Um, we we publish normal values. If if there's a uh, at any given moment in time, there's only so many labs that are necessarily sending their results to uh, to a Department of Health for contact tracers, for example. Well, this could be part of, in the same way that a physician, anytime we get any result in a patient's chart, uh, even if it's just something like a cholesterol, it comes with a normal value. Does this fit on this machine in this lab? Does, is this an outlier? And we could do very similar things uh, like that um, with these values. But the important part too is I think the, the differential between labs uh, has really been totally overblown. Because what I'm talking about is, in terms of how these values will be used, is on the orders of nu numerous orders of magnitude separating a low RNA load from a high. Um, and so I think that that's really important to take into consideration. Between instruments, maybe you have, or labs, maybe you have a difference of, of four or five cycle thresholds. So that's a 10 or 10 or 20 or 50 fold difference. But that's not the, but that's all within the same region of, of, uh, of viral loads in terms of what actions you would take next. The differences that I'm talking about that would really cause contact tracers to go in two different directions are getting a viral load of, of 10 billion versus getting a viral load of 10. Right. You know, and, and these quantitative PCR instruments are not going to be that far different that we can't distinguish those two. And I think that that's really very, very important to understand how many orders of magnitude difference we're talking about. Right. Um, thank you very much. The, the background of these questions is I used to test primers. So, you know, I'm trying to get this out of you. <laughs> uh, thank you for your time. Right. Uh, next question. Yes, thanks. Uh, a question about, actually two questions about using the percent of positive virus tests as a marker for infection incidence or even prevalence. You know, people have been using the percentage of positive tests as an indicator and I'm wondering how widely is that done and is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, well, we don't have many metrics. I personally look at that and think very little of those values. I mean, I'm astounded that policies are made uh, surrounding the, the fraction positive. Um, the fraction positive is wholly dependent on what your sampling procedures are. You know, sometimes we see 20% positive and sometimes we see 0.2% positive. Uh, if you're testing only symptomatic people, then, uh, then maybe 5% positive is low. If you're testing random people who walk by you on the street, 
then 0.5% is very high. And, uh, and so I, I think it's just so incredibly hard to know how to use these data. And, and um, we've been working uh, on a different uh, area. We, we just put out a preprint yesterday or uh, three days ago maybe um, that shows a different strategy for how to understand epidemic trajectory and whether cases are increasing or decreasing that is not based on total case counts and it's not based on uh, fraction positive at all. It's actually based on the CT values and it's based on uh, understanding uh, what is the, how we can look at the distribution of cycle thresholds across uh, positive samples on any given day. And it can actually give us a growth rate of how, how quickly or, or, or the virus is going up or going down in the population. And so it's another area where we can really use cycle thresholds to help inform uh, on these issues because of, because of the issues that you would bring up, which are you know, that fraction positive just isn't a, you know, it's such a, a froofy term in this way because we just don't know how to interpret it at, at any public health level um, for the most part. Have you seen any problems, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> have you seen any problems arise because of overuse of that statistic? Um, I don't think I could pin any specific problems on it. Um, I do think, uh, for example, in New York City, they've, they've said that they're going to um, put things on hold uh, if they, uh, if they have, uh, if the, the positive rate goes above 3%. Uh, for example, but um, uh, I don't know if that's actually useful. I don't know how they're necessarily uh, finding wh who they're testing when they say that 3% in the community is a truly random people, is it not? Um, and because in my opinion, 3% positive in the community is extremely high. Uh, if it's truly random, we would be at herd immunity in, in 20 days or something. Um, and so, uh, so Obviously, they're not talking about random sampling. So I think that it, I haven't seen any specific issues where I'd point to and say, look, what happened because they're using this value. But I would say that people are placing a lot of emphasis on it when it's really a, a value that's extraordinarily difficult to make any sense of. Thanks very much. Next question. Um, so, sorry to bring you back to vaccines, uh, but that's where I'm going. So, today the news broke that Pfizer's CEO says, assuming positive data, the company will apply for an EUA in November. One researcher I spoke to already says it's really unlikely that Pfizer will be able to reach that goal and they're just being optimistic. You know, what's your take? Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, theoretically, could they? Yes. Um, uh, and first I wanted to say, don't apologize for talking about vaccines. I, I, my normal life is vaccines. Um, and it's my clinical life is testing. My, my normal research life is vaccines. So I do appreciate talking about vaccines. <laughs> but, um, uh, I think that it's theoretically possible. Um, but I completely agree that, um, you know, the, 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 the CEOs and the, and the, and industry companies, if you follow kind of how they normally talk, and this is diagnostic companies, vaccine companies, um, they always shoot for the, shoot for the stars um, in terms of timelines, uh, especially, uh, because it gets people jazzed, it gets people energized, it gets investors energized. Um, is it, you know, normally there's not so much critique about it because it's uh, not normally of global importance uh, uh, in the way that these vaccines are. Um, 
but this is really common language and common sort of uh, ways to talk about it. Like we see all the time, for example, with the diagnostic companies who I work with a lot in the clinical realm, they'll often be a whole year um, off in terms of their, uh, when they put a timeline up and they say, oh, we're gonna have this new test, gonna be FDA approved in six months. It's usually not for another 18 months, for example. Um, and so I think, uh, this is our. This is the how our market works. Maybe maybe Mike Brush has something more to say on it. But um, I think that this is really common. And and could it happen? Sure. Is it likely to happen? Probably not. <laughs> and so they they're usually careful to use their words carefully, which is we might be able to apply for EUA um, by August, or or you know our goal is to. But it, they're not they're not painting themselves into a corner with it. Okay, thank you. And one follow-up I have, um, in his role as the designated senior representative, Dr. Fauci is the hands-on in overseeing the companies that are participating in Operation Warp Speed. And thus, he has a role in deciding whether the vaccines are ready to seek approval from the FDA. But when it comes to Pfizer, since they didn't apply for government funding, it doesn't apply to them. So can you talk to me or expand upon that? So who how does that change their approval process and who's overseeing them? Uh, well, the, they're overseeing themselves. They have safety, um, safety monitoring boards. Um, and this is how, this is normally how vaccines get approved. Um, usually it's on the companies um, uh, and more or less the companies on uh, alone to, uh, to do the testing, do the due diligence, ensure that they have uh, what are considered to be external advisors and external safety monitoring boards that are doing uh, that are doing their due diligence to ensure safety, ensure efficacy. People are are evaluating uh, uh, efficacy appropriately and safety appropriately. So that's I would say that it doesn't change a lot. Um, in the context here, you know, if you're part of Project Warp Speed and you're and you've received funding. Uh, there might be some internal mechanisms that will help once things get get through to the FDA that would have been considered sort of an ability to kind of get to the front of the line, if you will, for for evaluation. I don't think that's going to be the, the there's not a even though there are a lot of vaccines being produced uh, at the moment, there's there's only going to be a handful at most that go up for EUA authorization at any given time. And so I'm not I think that. Uh, any of the first vaccines to, to go up for authorization uh, are probably going to, you know, get immediately put to the EUA line, if you will. Um, so I don't think in, in, uh, in effect it's going to have uh, much impact on, on the timeline. And Pfizer's got enough money that they didn't really need taxpayer dollars at this point. Great. Uh, next question. I can assure you there's never any hype in the stock market. <laughs> um, the Another uh, data question. Um, so we're all talking about the death rate now as if it's a great thing. But I wonder if you can tell us whether um, or is that improving because we're really getting better at treatment and at protecting people? Or is it more just a, a, a measurement uh, uh, issue in the sense that so right right now on the seven-day average about 60,000 cases produce a thousand deaths and in March it was 30k to two basically 2.25k so is that more testing or are we really getting better at treatment and protecting people what's your take on that um, 
My take, it's a little bit of both. We have gotten better at treatment. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, even really simple things like how to position patients in the ICU when they're on a vent um, have really made an impact. And each of those, none have been the silver bullets, um, but each of them are improving and they collectively are improving our ability to know how to take care of the patients and keep them alive. Um, but I would say that's not at all the only thing that's, that's lowering the perceived death rate. Um, certainly, uh, certainly the, the, there are biases in terms of, or I should say, we're becoming less and less biased, uh, if you will, in terms of uh, how we're calculating percent deaths uh, of cases. And that's because we have uh, improved, to a certain extent, access to testing. More people uh, are, are getting tested who are not necessarily symptomatic. Um, so all these things are increasing our ability to, to, um, to determine these rates. I think one of the best uh, metrics that we can use to understand this question is amongst hospitalized patients, uh, are we getting better at keeping people alive? And that's where I think if we start to separate out these, these two items, uh, or at least control for them uh, in, in epidemiological and mathematical models, we can start to infer better what, what uh, proportion of variance or what, what um, proportion of the, of the overall reduction in mortality is truly a reflection of improved outcomes in the hospitalized patients, and what fraction is, uh, is due to sampling biases um, maybe becoming a little bit more neutralized. Uh, and, and then the other bit, bit which, isn't, which can be accounted for and can be considered a sample bias, uh, is that we're seeing different demographics getting infected now, um, particularly as younger people uh, have taken a more prominent role in the, in the numbers of infections that are happening, or at least the numbers of infections we know of uh, that are happening because we're testing younger and younger people, uh, then that also is causing the, the mortality to shift a bit. And I think in general, what we're seeing is um, we've all focused so heavily on one number, infection fatality rate of you know, 1% or 0.5%. You know, initially, it was 3%. And, uh, and we could have looked way back then and recognized, hey, it's not, as an average, that's probably not right. We're not capturing nearly all the cases that are actually occurring. When we use serology, that gives us a much better window into how many people have actually been infected versus died. Um, but, uh, but I think that we should never be talking, it with, especially with a virus like this, we should never be just talking about a single mortality rate as though, as though an average makes any sense. You know, I've been surprised to see how many um, biostatisticians and epidemiologists and physicians have been willing to talk about a single mortality rate when sort of like the first thing you learn in Biostats 101 or any statistics course is if you have a highly skewed distribution, then the mean doesn't necessarily reflect uh, the overall, the, the overall um, distribution. And, uh, and you have to take that into consideration. And, and we've largely kind of lost that I think in general, it's gotten a little bit better. We hear more and more people talking about low versus high. And, um, but we still often hear one number for the infection fatality rate, and that's probably not uh, smart. Right, so two questions. So w what is the death per hospitalization rate? Is, I, I like death per capita. I think that's a, a good way to adjust it too. But, um, and, and also, in, in terms of the um, skew in the distribution, what were you referring to just there? Like, w what does that mean? 
So yeah, is that for hospitalization and then the skew that you have to account for? Sorry. Yeah, so I, I actually don't know the death for hospitalization at this moment. Um, okay. Uh, but in terms of the skew that, um, that I'm referring to is the skew in, who, in who's actually dying. Uh, how many people, like if we're really trying to understand a balanced infection fatality rate, for example, and we're trying to, and we were to apply the appropriate weights, then we see this sort of exponential increase uh, in deaths across ages. So it's a very, very skewed distribution in terms of what ages are dying. And that age distribution yeah. does not reflect the age distribution of the country, uh, of people. The population, so, yeah. Exactly. And so we should be taking a more discerning approach to not just be calculating cases known uh, and, and dividing deaths uh, overall. We should really be uh, doing either age stratifying the death rates and always talking about it in an age stratified manner, or really trying to understand the, the true population distribution of infections and weighting and appropriately weighting deaths based on, based on that. And I, we generally haven't done that well. Yeah, that's a real, that's a real interesting point. Thank you very much. Sure. Okay, Dr. Mena, I think we've hit, uh, almost one o'clock. Do you have any final words you'd like to share with us before we go? Um, no, well, I guess for, for those who are still on, um, uh, I'll just put a plug in for that paper that I mentioned that, um, that Nicole put the preprint under. Um, I do think that it, it's still a preprint and we're going to come out with a published version you know, in the nearest future. Um, um, but I, uh, it, and so this doesn't have all the analyses, but I actually think that this will, um, should, uh, for anyone who's thinking about CT values or new ways to understand the trajectory of an epidemic, um, this is really a completely novel new method that um, has never really been done before. Um, but I think it has the potential to really change. Uh, you know, we've, we've generally looked at three, at three metrics throughout this whole pandemic, case counts on a daily basis and frequency of positives amongst those being tested. Um, this just gives a, a whole new resolution uh, to understand for public health people and for the population at large to just be able to monitor outbreaks and epidemics. And I expect that we should see, um, we, we should see uh, uh, public health departments around the, around the world probably starting to use these methods like this that we've come up with. And so I would encourage people to, to follow this idea and see if, it's, uh, if it starts to be used more frequently. This concludes the October 16th press conference.